Remain standing as we read the scripture from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. This is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. You may be seated. If you will, just pray with me as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Father, we uh, lift up to you this time, knowing that it is yours. Father, every second, every moment of our day, not just this hour, So, Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you will uh, make our hearts your tabernacle. Father, that you will dwell in us and that our hearts will be so filled with your presence, Father, that nothing else can enter in. Lord God, let us be singularly devoted to you. And may we be stirred up as we consider Jesus our great and better tabernacle. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you're new with us this morning... Um, we have been going through the book of Exodus. Um, we are one of those annoying churches that go verse by verse through a book, and we love it. That's just the weird thing about us, and that's just who we are, and part of our identity is that we just go through a book of the Bible, try to understand as best as possible what the actual words and the grammar and the sentences come together to mean. We, we find that um, it's amazingly beautiful that our God has spoken to us through the Bible. And so we, we want to be a Bible church in that sense. Uh, one of the primary tensions uh, in the book of Exodus centers on how God will be able to dwell among his people without consuming them. God's a holy God with a fiery, hot presence. And so by nature, we can understand that when you put something burnable, flam- flammable, in the presence of something fiery, it's going, it's doomed to just burn up. So how will God accomplish this burning bush type relationship wherein he will stay with his people and yet not burn them up with his presence? Exodus 24 last week answered that question in part by pointing to uh, the blood of the sacrifice, specifically showing that it was by the blood that the 70 elders were allowed to eat, drink, and behold God and not die. But the question remained, however, how will they continue that? How will they continue to experience God's fiery presence without being burned? That's what the tabernacle's for. The tabernacle was intended to be a continuation of God's presence on Mount Sinai. In it, God would dwell with the people and they would not die. God would live among his people and they would not die. Think of it as God's portable palace where he guides and leads and meets with his people. 
Now, this helps explain why the building of the tabernacle holds such a central place in Exodus. Altogether, if you look at the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the instructions and all these very specific details that most of us just want to skip over, right? It takes up 11 chapters of the 40 chapters of the book of Exodus. That's almost a fourth of the book. It's centered on how the people of God came to have the tabernacle. And yet, as we will see, the significance of the tabernacle is not central to Exodus alone, but it's significant for the rest of Scripture. Specifically, we're going to see how the tabernacle points backward to Eden and then points forward to Jesus Christ and the presence we have with Jesus, and then on even further to the eternal dwelling of God with his people in the end. So we're going to be all over the Bible, going from Genesis to Revelation, and some of you that have been with us for a while might say, what's new? Um, uh, you knew what you were getting into when you hired me. So, Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, serves as an introduction to the tabernacle plans God was about to give. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair and tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their presence. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, we have several key truths here that are about how the tabernacle actually comes about. First, we see that God's people contribute to the construction of God's dwelling place. This is where the tabernacle is different from Eden. God didn't make it ex nihilo. God made it by using his people to contribute the things that were needed to build the tabernacle. Second, when they give, they were to give willingly in remembrance that it was for God. Now, to be sure, giving is a command from God. God says they must give. He tells them to command the people to take up a contribution. It's not really a negotiation. And yet, at the same time, he said he acknowledges that the only people who will give are the ones who, whose heart moves him. So God commands, but he anticipates that the will will be there to carry forward the command. We don't, we're not, uh, the, the people of God are not compulsively giving. They're not coerced to give. There's no guilt here. Tell the people that I'm cold in this wilderness and I need a tent. He doesn't do any of that. He simply commands and then he anticipates that his people will want to. Considering all that God has done for his people, They have not been left out in the cold. They have not been left alone. He has not abandoned them. He has saved them and redeemed them, called them out of Egypt, rescued them from 400 years of slavery, led them through the wilderness, miraculously provided food for them, miraculously given them water. I think it's a small thing that God would ask them, would command them to contribute some of these things for his dwelling place. Third is ironic. Because of all the things that he's asking for in this list, there's not one thing that they did not get when they plundered Egypt. 
All these things that they're asked to give are things that God in his grace has first given them. They're contributing what God has gifted to them. Where did they get the gold? Where did they get the silver? Where did they get the fine twine linen? I mean, this is this is not something that slaves naturally had back then. Fine twine, twine linen was something that only kings possessed. And yet they have it in abundance. So where did it come from? If not from the days that God graciously conquered Egypt and said, hey, go tell your neighbors to give you stuff. And then their neighbors brought out all this gold and silver and fine twine linen specifically so that God's dwelling place could be built. Now, fast forward to the present. Uh, most sermons, we, you know, we look at the text and then we talk about what it means to us. But I think it's also helpful sometimes to stop and consider point by point why this is important. Why would the truths that we read about co- the contribution to tabernacle building apply to the church? Well, God still uses his people to contribute the building of his dwelling place. He still uses us. God works through means, doesn't he? Sure, God could and sometimes probably does just give stuff out of nowhere, but I don't think it's his normal plan that God just out of nowhere provides. He uses means. He puts it on people's hearts as people pray and as people ask and petition God. God moves others and God in his sovereignty is constantly moving people to accomplish his redemptive plan. But there's one big difference between the way that we contribute as the church to God's dwelling place, and the way the people of Exodus contributed to the tabernacle. In Exodus, the people contributed the materials. But in the New Testament church, we contribute ourselves. Do you realize that? We're going to see in a moment, when we get past the tabernacle, how God's people no longer just give things to build the dwelling place of God. They themselves are the building blocks for the dwelling place of God. We don't just contribute by giving money and giving time and giving skills. That is, that is all of us. Everything we have, whatever we call ours is fair game to contribute to God because we are the building blocks. Add on whatever facilities we might have. It is not the temple of God. You are. And so as we ask you to serve, as we ask you to give, as we ask you to give your time, as we ask you to be among and and in the midst of God's people, we're not asking you anything different than what God has made you to be. The temple, the dwelling place, the building blocks, the living God. We're not asking you to give what's yours. We're asking you to give what God gave you and to give it back to the building up of God's house, which is, again, not this building. It's you and the people who come in. Everything burns down. Everything falls down. If we just stood in the middle of the pasture here and sang and read scripture and proclaimed the gospel to one another, the church still stands. We'll talk more about that at the end of service because I've got some real applications for you to do today. You are called as the people of God to give the gold of your time, the silver of your skills, the bronze of your abilities, the fine linens of your actions, the precious stones of your faculties. God deserves the best of us because God dwelling in and among us is best for us. Do you see that? God wanted what was best for his people. And so he required from them what was best of them, which he gave to them. It's cyclical. 
Hey, you remember that gold I gave you? Remember that silver I gave you? I want you to give it back because I'm going to move toward your best and toward your good. God uses means to build his dwelling place, which means that it is spirit-driven, heart-motivated contribution from all the people of God that builds the house of God. Moving on. This nine-verse introduction also defines what exactly the tabernacle is. If you look at verses 8 and 9, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Of all its furniture, so shall you make it. The word sanctuary is important because it simply means holy place. It's God's holy place. It's a place that's been made holy so that the holy God could live in it, and it's to be built off of his own divine pattern. The author of Hebrews claims that the tabernacle itself was an earthly place of holiness. You see that in Hebrews chapter 9. It was an earthly place of holiness that was meant to represent God's heavenly throne room. So so I just want you to picture, as they're building this physical, earthly, material structure, here's the image. The throne room has come down. Heaven has come to earth. That's what the tabernacle represents. That God's throne, God's presence, God's uh, rule, God's reign, God's love, God's justice, God's mercy, all of it just comes crashing down right in the middle of Israel. So that's how important this little structure is. It's not very big. Um, my house is bigger than the tabernacle. I think. I, I mean, yeah, it's only like 45 feet long. So it's not very big. But the size of it still doesn't communicate how much grandeur there is, how much majesty, how much amazing beauty there is that the Lord God would come and tabernacle himself among the people of God in such a humble, humble tent. Now, the tabernacle had three sections. You can't really see that in this image, but uh, the, the further into the tabernacle you went, the holier it was, right? So not everything is equally holy, right? Uh, the altar is holy, but the Ark of the Covenant is most holy. So there's gradation. So the further you went in, you get into the outer section of the courtyard. There stood the bronze altar and the, the bronze basin. And really any Israelite could come in and make a sacrifice. The bronze basin we'll talk about next week because it was for the priesthood alone. But the altar was there. And so uh, an Israelite could come in and bring their goat, bring their lamb, bring their oxen to sacrifice it on the altar. And yet it was fenced off, Right. To show that even in the middle of Israel, there's a separation between God's tent and Israel's tent. So you go in a little further, you find the holy place. That's where you find the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the incense altar, and the lamp that is to be to remain lit perpetually. And only the priest can go in there. Any Levitical priest can go in there to trim the lights, to trim the lamps, to uh, set the bread out on the table. Um, so a, a normal priest can go in there, but no Israelite. Any Israelite that's not a Levitical priest that goes into the holy place is killed right away. But then you've got the most holy place, the, the holy of holies. That's in the center of the tabernacle. The only thing you find in the holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk in a minute why that's significant. And no one is allowed in the holy of holies except for one man and on one day of the year. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement is allowed to 
past that curtain, go into and stand before the Ark of the Covenant and not die. If he goes in on a February, he's dead. He's toast. There's only one day of the year that God allows this one man to enter into his presence. Further, the tabernacle sanctuary reminds God's people of the garden sanctuary all the way back in Eden. My friends, if there's anything that I, 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 I am focused on in my ministry is to help people learn how to listen to their Bible. Notice I didn't just say read, but to listen to your Bible. There is a drumbeat, a rhythm, a melody that the Bible has that if you listen intently to, to it as you are reading it, you begin to think, wait a second, we've seen this before. This is a familiar melody. Reading the Bible is not like watching a skit. Reading the Bible is like sitting in a symphony where some of the melodies come back and again and again and they replay it. And so if you listen to the melodies, you're reminded of things that have come before. Well, it reminds us of Eden. How? Well, first off, if you read the precious stones, where else do we find a list of those very same precious stones? Genesis 2. It was a a garden, it was a land where there's onyx, there's gold and bdellium. So we find the very same stone. Second, there's cherubim all over this thing. On the curtains, on the ark, bowing down on the ark. And then very specifically, as we'll talk about here in a minute, guarding the entrance of the Holy of Holies. So you walk into the holy place, you see this big blue veil, and there's two gigantic cherubim etched onto this thing. What do you think comes to mind? Where else do we see cherubim guarding the entrance to a holy place? It's Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Third, the golden lampstand. This is a cool little thing, right? We, we typically imagine a menorah. Um, a menorah is close, but it's not quite what the lampstand is. As you read the description, it has almond blossoms, and it doesn't just have, you know, uh, things that, that uh, stem out from the central candlestand. It has branches. So almond blossoms, branches, what comes to mind? A tree. This tree of light could possibly symbolize the tree of life. This is especially cool when you remember that light and life almost always come together in Scripture. We'll talk more about that one in a minute. For you nerds in the room who've always loved this kind of stuff, it'll really, it'll really be a good day for you. For those of you that don't, um, go home, watch Indiana Jones, and watch him get eaten up by the ark. Um, fourth, that, not biblical at all, okay? Just saying. Uh, fourth, the entrance of Eden is on which side? It's on the east. How did you get into Eden? Where did God drive them out from? From the, he pushes them out. And then the guards of the, of the, of Eden, the cherubim of Eden are placed on the east entrance. You get into the tabernacle the same way that you get into Eden. Again, symbolizing that God is trying to establish Eden on earth. Now, perhaps the strongest evidence of this. As God is, is what God says he will do in the tabernacle, specifically in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. God's, in, God's not going to sit in the tabernacle. Okay, God's not going to lounge in the tabernacle. None of those verbs are used. God's not taking a nap in a hammock in the Holy of Holies. Okay? God says he walks in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. Where else do we see God walking in a holy place with people? 
in the Garden of Eden. All these truths taken together, this is not just theological nerdiness, right? This is theological significance because this shows us a God who wants us back in Eden with him. We've been exiled. We've been kicked out. We were adulterous. We were idolatrous. We were sinners. We were enemies. We were hostile. We were counter gods, counter kings. And yet the king of all the earth moves heaven and earth to reestablish paradise with his people. All the way back in the Old Testament. It doesn't just get started when Jesus comes. He gives us illustrations of that leading all the way up to Jesus. My friends, you may not feel loved and accepted by anyone. But there's a God of the universe who will literally bring his house down to dwell with you. It's hard to get much better love than that. Now, having considered considered how the tabernacle was built, namely by the people's willing contribution and why it was built to be a sanctuary for God, we're now ready to take a mental tour of the tabernacle's symbols. Every aspect of the tabernacle was meant to communicate something about God's presence. From the Ark of the Covenant to the oil of the lamp. Now, that's um, uh, Jeffrey brought me a, a lamp back from Israel on one of his trips and just a little bitty lamp. But even that little bitty lamp and the oil in it is meant to symbolize something about God. Every object bent and tailored to show that God is with his people. In chapters 25 to 27, God gives five particular symbols of God's presence. Um, I got a little picture up in here. This is the best one I could find. If you have an ESV study Bible, just turn a couple pages and you'll find that very same image there. Um, we, we look to the first object, which is the Ark of the Covenant. That's the, that's the thing right in the center with the poles, okay? It's mentioned first, which is important, because it's the most important thing in the tabernacle. It itself is central to the whole tabernacle structure. When you read about the Ark in other passages, it most often symbolizes the presence of God. For example, in Joshua 3, they're ready to go into the promised land, they're fearful. The man has uh, the man is about to stop. They're about to go meet all these giants. They're the they're the uh, uh, Amalekites, the Canaanites, and and the sons of Anak, which are just giant, huge, nasty people that make Israelites look like grasshoppers. Apparently, so they're just about to go in. But who goes in first? Notice I said who, even though when we read about it, we see what, right? What goes in first? The Ark of the Covenant, which the people of Israel see and interpret it to mean that the Lord of all the earth is going before them. They're not, this isn't an idol. This is a symbol showing that God's presence has been with them. We find the Ark of the Covenant later in 1 Samuel 5 when the Philistines got Dagon. Okay. So, so if you know 1 Samuel 5, the people of Israel got, started treating this thing like an idol. They started acting as if it itself was good and not the God behind it, okay? Um, and so they brought it out to battle. It got captured. The Philistines brought it to the Temple of Dagon, which some argue is kind of a serpent-like God, okay? Kind of significant there. Um, and here's what we find happening to Dagon. On day number three, Dagon's face down with his head crushed and his hands cut off. Who's bowing to who? 
Yahweh is victorious. Yahweh is God of gods. Yahweh is king of kings. So in light of what the ark represented, the ark's placement in the holy of holies, the most holy place was symbolic of the Lord's dwelling in the tabernacle. It was the holiest of all the symbols. It was to be carried by poles. As we find out later in 2 Samuel 6, if anyone touched it, they die. That's how holy it is. In Exodus 25, verse 16, God reveals what's to be put into an ark. So an ark's a box, okay? If you don't know what an ark is, right? An ark's a box. And God says that they're to put the testimony. That's the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments that he's written. Those are to go into the box. And so as this thing is coming out and it's walking before them, what do you think the people think of? Well, the law, right? That's what's inside of it. God's justice. He's a righteous and justice and a holy God who reigns by law. Now, for those of us that might be a little bit, whoa, that's, that's a lot there. The ark also symbolized God's mercy. Inside the ark rested God's law, but on top of the ark there was a lid. We call it the atonement cover. Other uh, Hebrew passages call it the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And here's what happened with the mercy seat. That one day a year that I talked about, that one man in all of Israel could go into, it was in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with a bowl full of sacrificial blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that one day a year solidified the presence of God for a whole nother year. And when he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, all the sins of Israel for that year, that's significant, for that year were made atoned, were, were atoned, were forgiven. And God was able to dwell with his people again and again. So, so we see this ark, this box, and we see it as symbolizing the presence of God who reigns in justice and in mercy. Justice and in mercy. Again, remember this is a symbol. The author of Hebrews calls it a shadow. There's something else coming that will fulfill what the ark symbolizes by being God's presence and giving justice and mercy. So we're going to see that here in a minute. The second object is the table for bread. It's uh, that little table right there with the stacks of bread. Like the ark, it was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. It's also similar to the ark. People aren't to touch it. They're to carry it with poles. They put the poles in it and they carry it because less than holy human hands should not be touching things that are holy. But notice that there's not a whole lot of detail for why the, the table actually exists. Like people debate that all the time. Why, why did the table actually be, exist? I think they're kind of overthinking it a, bit, a little bit. Here's something profound about the table. Are you ready to understand why the table exists. This is a profound purpose to hold bread. Wow. To hold bread. And not just any bread, the bread of presence. Now, is this gold bread? No, no, no. It's just, it's just loaves of bread, normal bread. It got stale. They had to change it out. Only the priests were supposed to eat it. David eats some of it later. Just normal bread. Probably not even really good bread at that, but it's it's just bread. So what does it symbolize then? Well, I think it symbolizes that God wants to be present with his people and he's inviting them into table fellowship with him. Do you see that? We saw that in Exodus 24. What did the elders of Israel do with God? 
when they went up the mountain? Did they hold a conference? God, we're going to have a meeting and strategize how we're going to organize your people. Did they have, uh, I don't know, the, uh, did they have a, a God, God being kind of this motivational speaker, right? Where they're all just going to sit and take notes, how to, 10 steps, how to live as a better elder in Israel? No. They ate, they drank, and they beheld God. God's purpose for Israel is that they would enjoy table fellowship with him. That they would have a seat at his dinner table. That's what that thing represents, I think. Every time they see this golden table walking, they're reminded, our God is with us. Our God wants us to eat in his presence. Then we get to the golden lampstand. Like I said already, it was shaped like a big golden tree, and it's possible that the the tree, this tree of light represents the tree of life. Um, and it definitely makes sense as we get through the rest of Scripture and the rest of the sermon. And so if it's true that this... Is, is trying to represent the tree of life. What it's symbolizing is that because God is present, the light representing God's presence, because God is present, the Israelites have life. They have life. They have God's light, and therefore they have God's life that God has given them. It's about as much as I'm willing to say on the golden lampstand right now. So let's get to the tabernacle itself. This is the big tent, right? When we think of tabernacle, we tip, tip, typically think of everything in it, but this is just the tent around it, okay? It's a lengthy section. It takes up all of Genesis, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 26. This is the chapter that most of you fall asleep in your machine reading plan. Um, this is the chapter that most of you transition over to check your Facebook status. But I hope that in pointing some things out, that won't ever happen again. Um, so we see that uh, the, the, the tent and the curtains are all to be worked with this fine linen and goat's hair and ram's hair. Um, but but think about why it's made with fine twine linen. Again, who is the only one that had fine twine linen? Kings. Royalty. This is God's holy residence. This is God's holy palace. And so even walking in, you, you feel like you're marching into the presence of a king. That's symbolic. In chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, God significantly commands that a veil be made, a blue veil. That's going to do what? The whole purpose of the veil? To separate the holy place from the holy of holies. And that cherubim are to be worked into it, again representing and echoing the Garden of Eden. And the sole purpose of the veil was to keep everyone and everything out so they wouldn't die. It was to separate Anyone who went beyond this veil, outside of that high priest, outside of that atonement day, immediately fell down flat dead. The bronze altar, this is the fifth one. Uh, it was to be placed outside of the tent in the courtyard. As with the ark and the table, the altar was holy and was to be carried with poles. And the altar was placed just outside of the courtyard. Okay, so so you see... Uh, well, not in this one, you don't see. Um, there's a fence around the tabernacle, and on the east side, there's an entrance, okay? Right in front of the entrance, right in front of the gate of the courtyard, you find the bronze altar. And so every time you walk by the fence of the tabernacle, every time you go into the fence of the tabernacle, guess what the first thing you see is? What is it? The altar. Now, this doesn't sound that significant, and actually Exodus 25 and 26 doesn't 
uh, in 27 doesn't give us any specific purpose, uh, significance behind this, but other passages do. If you go to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13, God makes a specific command that the fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Now, most of us have lit fires. Um, some of us are doing some spring cleaning, which means we've got a lot of backyard fires, brush fires going on, all that kind of stuff. Where you, you hear you hear the the phrase where there's what there's fire, smoke. So fire comes. So smoke comes from fire. Well, just to give you a visual illustration of this, all day long, all night long, smoke is coming up from the altar. What do you think that's reminding the Israelites of? That the basis of the presence of God is based, founded on, because of what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. All day long, they're camp filled with smoke from the altar. They got a choke on it when they walk by. They smell it when they enter into the courtyard. They see it day after day, night after night. Reminding them every moment of the day, God is with you because something has died for you. I don't think I have to go too far into why that's important for later. Without sacrifice, there's no relationship with God. There's no presence of God. Now let's look at the courtyard. In Exodus 27, 9 through 19, I, I hope you understand why we're not going through every word. That would be horrible for you. Um, cubits and lengths and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, I, I mean, trust me, I would love to do that. So if any of you complain about this sermon, we will do that at some point. Um, but for now, we're just going to focus on kind of this big over overview of it. Essentially, the courtyard around the fence of God's dwelling place, here's how I want you to think of it. It's a private yard fence. It's a private yard fence. This thing is seven and a half foot tall. Seven and a half foot tall. I, I'm not seven and a half foot tall. Far, far beneath it. I don't know anyone that's seven and a half foot tall. This is basically a big private yard fence. It covers roughly a quarter of a football field. And the courtyard, its one and only purpose was to separate the tent of God, the tabernacle of God, from the tents of the Israelites. He wants them to know, I am with you, but there's still something between us. There's still imperfect communion. I can't be fully with you. I can't just have unveiled presence because I would kill you in my holiness. So he puts up a fence, not to, not to keep himself in and all that kind of stuff, but to keep them out so that he doesn't break out against them. It's a huge deal. If that fence had not been there, then Israel would have just been burned up alive by the presence of God when that fiery cloud came down on it. God loves them. He wants to be with them. But he knows it's not complete yet. It's not the fulfillment of time yet. The fence protects them from him. Finally, we get to the oil from the lamp. God, uh, in the last few verses, God commands that Israel bring pure beaten oil for the lamp into the tabernacle. Verse 21 explains further, Aaron and his son shall tend it, that is a lamp, from evening to morning before the Lord. But simply, when it's time for us to go to bed in our house, we start turning off all the lights. We leave a few lights on for, you know, the kids, they're scared of the dark and 
Um, uh, so is our dog, ironically enough. Um, uh, not much of a watchdog there. Um, and so you just want to figure out, turn off the light. And, you know, so anyway, I sound like an animal torturer now. Um, anyway, uh, all I'd say, when, when it's time for us to go to sleep, we start t- shutting off lights, right? Same thing happened in Israel. It's time to go to bed. You start putting out fires and you, you snuff out the candle stands and the lamps. But while everybody else's lights are going off, whose light stays on? God's. My friends, can you imagine being an Israelite? Knowing that you're in the middle of this desert where there's wolves and there's lions and there's all these wild animals and raiders like the Amalekites who kill, steal, and destroy things. And there's all kinds of dangers. Like, how can you sleep? Some of us can barely sleep being behind a locked door in a brick-and-mortar house. How much less do you think these people, being in a place that is not their own, sleep behind a tent and trust that their kids and their families are going to be safe? So as they're drifting off to sleep that night, and they're wondering, how do I know I'm going to wake up in the morning? They remember that the lamp is still lit. God's presence for God's people is like a nightlight of comfort. Right? When all the lights go out in our life, when all things seem to just go dark, all the fears begin to creep in, the anxieties and the worries. Guess what God says? I've left the light on for you, my son, my daughter. All night long, I'm awake. You wake up in the middle of the night scared, just call out to me. My light's still on. I'm not asleep. The middle of the night, you don't know what's going to happen the next day, and you can't sleep. My light's still on. You can meet with me anytime. The light is on in my house, and it never goes out. I never sleep. Close your eyes, for my eyes are wide open on you. What a comfort. Even the oil of the lamp. Israelites brought this olive oil and had no clue. Just We're bringing this just to keep our own nightlight lit. So that we can know that God is with us even in the darkest hours. Now, as amazing as these symbols were, they allowed only for limited access. You can see the ark, but you do not touch the ark. You can see the table, but do not touch the table. It has to be carried. The Holy of Holies is there, but only a few people can go. Only one person can go in. And once a year, the veil is there to keep you out. The fence is up. It is access before God, absolutely, but it is limited access. And so while the tabernacle partially solves the tension, how can God dwell with his people and yet not consume them and not kill them? It's still an incomplete solution, isn't it? Because if we step forward into redemption history, we see that this was never meant to be the destination. This is the step in that direction. The tabernacle is explicitly meant to leave us wanting more. Specifically, it leaves us longing for not just limited access to God. It leaves us longing for the full access to God. God, I want your private yard fence to come down. I want the veil to be gone. I don't want just your ark. I want you. 
I want just the light from a lamp stand. I want your light on my face. Let the light of your face shine on me. Is a prayer that you see all over scripture. God, don't just give me limited access. Give me full presence in your house. Then comes the gospel. The gospel permanently solves the tension. The tabernacle is a step forward. It's great. God can dwell with his people and they won't die. But the gospel comes and says, hey, you can come into the Holy of Holies now and not die. Exodus 25 and 27 is about a place of God's dwelling. But as we go through the rest of Scripture, we see how the tabernacle transforms into three different things. It transforms into a person, into a people, and into a perfect, permanent paradise. That's a lot of peas. It's my Baptist upbringing right there. A person, a people, and a permanent paradise. So let's see how the tabernacle is transformed in the New Testament and the rest of Scripture. First, the gospel shows that the dwelling place of God is now a person. John 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning was a word, and the word was like God. No, the word was with God, and the word was almost God, half God, demigod. The word was God, right? So it goes through all this, and it makes it absolutely clear that this word is God himself. Now listen to what he says in verse 14, and I'll just read it straight from the the Greek translation here. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Guess what? Full of what? Grace and truth, grace and justice, mercy and law. He does one better than the ark. And what's more is you touch the ark, you die. You touch Jesus, you're made whole. Jesus is the new and better ark of the covenant. In him is the law of God perfectly, but on him is the mercy seat of God himself. You touch this ark, you don't die, your bleeding stops. Your daughter is made well. Your soul is saved. That's what we see. People coming just to touch the hem of his robe. He's touched and touched and he's been touched by lepers and touched by men who are weeping about their, about their daughters and, and, and touched by women who grab his feet and want to, want to wash his feet with the tears of their face because of his grace. Touch Jesus and you will not die. You will live. He does one better than the table. The table signifies table fellowship with God. I don't think it's any mistake that when you read the book of Matthew, which we're going through this fall, I don't think it's any mistake that you see Jesus and one of the main things said about him, the Son of Man came what? Eating and drinking. One of the biggest critiques about Jesus 
It's not just what he said. Yeah, they, people had problems with that. It's not just what he did. Yeah, people had problems with that. It was the fact that he sat and reclined at the table with tax collectors and sinners. That he brought table fellowship for runts like us. That's the beauty of Jesus. His light outshines the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand represented life with God, but Jesus' light is life with God. It doesn't represent it. It doesn't symbolize it. The light of Jesus shines and there is life. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of God's friends, and in his light, life is offered to those who trust in him. Moreover, Jesus' sacrifice on the altar of the cross is a thing that perpetually, forever, every moment of the day reminds us how we have presence with God. But here's the thing. The sacrifices had to be repeated over and over. Every sin, here comes a goat. Every time that I offend my neighbor and do something unintentionally wrong like that, I bring a goat, bring an oxen, bring a lamb. Every year, we hope that high priest is going to come walking out alive because that's our guarantee that we're good for another year with God. Atonement lamb slaughtered year after year after year after year. Jesus died once. I did not hear an amen for that. Jesus died once. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain. What curtain? That veil? Oh yeah. That curtain, that that veil, that is through his flesh. The veil was ripped. Jesus was torn. And entry to God was given. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies Washed in the bronze basin with pure water. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again so that we could enter the Holy of Holies and not die. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle where we meet with God. So here's the first application. We're going to build all of our applications off of these three transformations of the tabernacle. First application is simply this. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus and you can have the presence of God. Trust in Jesus and you can walk boldly into the holy place. Second, because of the gospel, God's people have themselves become the dwelling place of God. God's spirit no longer dwells in the holy of holies made of curtains. He dwells in the holy of holies of our hearts. You see, the Spirit of God is moved. It's still intended, right? But it's intended in us. 
God's Spirit dwells in a human tent. According to Paul, here's what's beautiful about Ephesians 2. Guess what he says? God has broken down the what? The dividing wall of hostility. You know what that means? The private yard fence has come down. It's down. When Jesus died, I could just hear this seven foot and a half foot thing just go smack on the ground. Private yard fence is down. Access open. God's house now safe. Come in. Come in. Come in. And don't die. And because of this, according to Paul, we ourselves don't just contribute to the building of the house of God. We are the house of God. We are a holy what? Temple in the Lord. Look at verse 22 of Ephesians 2 sometime, and you see it again. In him you also are being built together into a what? A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. My friends, you want to know why church is so important? If you can build a house off of one brick, then you can build the church off of one person. The next time someone says they don't need church, I dare them to build a house off of one brick. We are built together into the house of God. Why are you needed? Because you're a brick. And why do you need us? Because by yourself, you're a brick. It's only together that we're the temple of God. Only together that we're the holy dwelling place of God. Yes, you can have Jesus in you. Get up at five in the morning. Turn off Facebook. Spend some time with Jesus in you. That's great. Come together and be the holy place of God. Together. Built together into a holy temple. So that's the second application. How are you doing being a holy temple together with God's people? Are you a solitary brick laying on the ground? Or are you a part of the structure that God is building? Now finally, I'm over time, which is no surprise to you. But I cannot cut this last one, so um, rebuke me later. Uh, the Bible began with a garden paradise, right? How does the Bible end with a garden paradise? The tabernacle was transformed into a person, into a people, and one day it will be transformed into a garden city in Revelation 21. In the tabernacle, you have the Holy of Holies, and it's a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet and 15 feet up. Okay, It's the only place in all of Scripture that you ever see the dimensions of something being a perfect cube. And first you're like, oh, I don't care it was a perfect cube. Until you get to Revelation, and God sends a city, which, guess what, is a what? A perfect cube. What do you think God's trying to communicate with that? He's brought one massive holy of holies down smack on the earth. And if the city, the new Jerusalem is the holy of holies where we can meet with God. What does that mean for the rest of the earth? It's the whole temple, the holy place, holy of holies, New Jerusalem, Africa, and everywhere else, Antarctica, Canada, United States, just holy place. 
The whole earth will be God's dwelling place. The most holy place being in the New Jerusalem. Which is why the the author of Habakkuk, the the prophet, can sit here and say in chapter 2, verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as what? As the waters cover the sea. They call us the blue planet. Why are we the blue planet? Because we have a ton of water. And Hosea says, one day it won't be the blue planet, it'll be the glory of God planet. So what's the application from this? I think the application is simply to look forward and hope. Fox News, CNN, your little news feeds, your diagnoses, whatever your doctors tell you, that's all bad news, right? It's all bad news. Where's going, world's going to hell, right? That's not what Scripture says. Sure, it's not going to get better because of any political system. Sure, it's not going to get better in our health. We're just going to continue to waste away outwardly. But here's what we know according to God's presence and God's promise that there will be a day that a new earth is made. We don't have to fear the future. We don't have to fear what's going to happen. There are more people today on anxiety meds and depression meds because they're so fearful. I don't want to ever make you think that anxiety meds or depression meds are sinful. But just to pastorally speak into that, there's no reason to be anxious. Because the very thing that we see in Revelation 21 that John hears, we will one day hear. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold. Now, now, first off, whose voice is on the throne? Is this an angel's voice? No, it's God's. God himself speaking. So one day, a voice from the throne, God's voice himself says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And then guess what comes next? He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, nor pain. And then we hear the voice of God saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father God, as we passionately consider and think about your love and the way that you have established your presence among us, God, let our hearts be lit with the fire that was inside of the holy place. It is because of Jesus, the great sacrifice, that we may now enter in boldly. We are the people of God, and you dwell in us, you dwell with us, and one day we will get to see your dwelling in a perfect, permanent paradise. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.